0: Morning. How are y'all? I'm going to be covering. I'm not covering for Fred. I'm actually just taking over the next unit as we go through the systematic theology class. Um, I know that I was here last week and he was talking about uh, Christology, right? The nature of Christ. So this week we're going to start probably a multi-sunday series on the attributes of God, which is just about as pure theology as you can get. In fact, a lot of systematic theologies just call this theology proper, and so hopefully everything I say, if you've ever read of systematic theology or gone through a course in it at a seminary, uh, this will all be. This is all pretty settled doctrine. So at least in the evangelical and Reformed circles. So before I start, I would like to pray for us, and especially I want to pray this week because we're starting VBS that. That's a blessing and, uh, for both the, those serving and those attending. So, dear Father, we're so glad to be in your house today. We're so glad to be together as an assembly to learn about the things you would have us learn, to serve together, to worship together, and to fellowship together. Lord, this coming week, uh, there's a project seeking to honor your name. Uh, Vacation Bible School. Lord, uh, a lot of people put a lot of um, time and effort into this. I pray that you will uh, take that toil, that work, and bring glory to yourself through it. Please help the gospel to be heard in young hearts. Please uh, help those that, that attend, the young people that attend, to have open ears to hear the truth from your word. And Lord, please give everyone... Um, energy perseverance to uh, to do their best work for you this week um, and Lord as we turn our attention in this Sunday school class to the attributes that describe you this is a big deal lord we're talking about you and Lord I pray that this was an edifying topic for uh, this class and I pray that uh, that it's Understandable as much as you can be understood, which is certainly, Lord, we're going to learn that uh, you're beyond our understanding, but you've revealed yourself to us, and uh, Lord, help us to speak correctly about you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so before we before we dive in, I want to present a picture that we're going to end up using uh, repeatedly throughout this uh, series. And I want to acquaint you with this, and then uh, we'll start talking a little bit about uh, the nobility of God. So what do we see on this? The reason this is important is because when we start talking about the attributes of God, we're going to end up saying things, and then we're going to turn around in a lot of these cases and say, and yet, something else. And the, if you're not careful, the, the something else can sound like I'm contradicting myself. So we're talking, So, when we talk about things like, does God change, the, uh, the, uh, the, the core attribute of God is that God is immutable. And yet we're going to see there's cases where it certainly looks like he's dynamic and moving in history. So to me, this was incredibly useful. And I can provide this, by the way, if you're interested. But um, what we see here is an arch. And everything under this arch is creation. I'm calling it time-bound creation. So everything, you see the timeline at the bottom. In the beginning starts at the left. That's time zero. We see the cross in the middle. The little sword thing is Jesus' return, his second coming. And new heavens and new earth. And everything everything under this arch is everything that's been created. Meaning that everything above the arch is uncreated. Now, how many things are uncreated? Somebody help me. God. God. So that's why I put I am at the top, right? I'm, I'm going to use I am because to me, the name of God is a perfect uh, description of what we mean of him and his transcendence. So we need to define what we mean by transcendence And what we mean by eminence, because those are two very important definitions we need to to, um, understand as we get into this topic. So, just camped out on this a little bit more, we say time-bound creation is under the arch. See up on the left, it says timeless eternity. We're going to be making assertions about God and his transcendence, that he's outside of space and outside of time. And that means that even those visions in the Bible that we have of God seated on a throne with seraphim, time is, I mean, that, that is under the arch. It may not be, it may be in the temple in Jerusalem. It may be um, in heaven. In Revelation, we get a vision of heaven. But even heaven is a place, and it's a created place. So its we call that under the arch. And and literally, even I have to struggle not to describe the top as a place. So I know this is heady stuff, but above the arch, if God is the only thing that exists, he does not exist at a place because a place is a created thing. So you need to think of above the arch as God and nothing else. And, And try not to think of him in terms of space or filling a space or occupying time. So, does anyone have a working definition of transcendence? Let's define these two terms. What's transcendence? Come on, people. Okay, and I've literally shown that in this case, to transcend, yeah. Um, so. Even though positionally this is above the arch, I I, I do want to get away from the idea of it being a location. But you're right. It's beyond time-space. This means God is far above the creation in the sense that he is greater than the creation and he is independent of it. And as we get into the attributes, we'll talk a little bit about his independence and his eternality. So when we talk about God and his transcendence, we need to understand that we're talking about Prior to the creation, what existed? The trying God. Only the triune God. Am I, is everybody tracking with this? You good? So when God created, he created everything under the arch. He created time, space, us. And we need to now talk about this other concept of eminence. Anybody have a guess as to what eminence means? Okay. More general than that, though. Any any thoughts? Okay. So if transcendence is over and above, this is a complementary term. This is existing or remaining in. The term is used in theology to speak of God's involvement in creation. And this is a very important doctrine because without it, we can very easily end up with a God that is so far removed from creation that he's not involved. We become deists if we believe in transcendence but not eminence. And the Bible very clearly presents God as, a, as involved in history, involved in our lives. There's a reason that we pray, because we have an expectation that God hears our prayers and reacts to things and changes things. And so as we walk through these attributes, I think um, different theological camps tend to emphasize different things, and one of the errors of the reform movement, if it gets out of control, is an emphasis on transcendence at the expense of eminence. And so what we will try to do is walk through and make sure that without giving an inch on transcendence, we also want to confess eminence. So slow me down if I'm not making any sense, and speed me up if this is too rudimentary. So but before we do that, is everybody okay with this diagram, Accepting it's a working model? It's just a mental model. It's not inspired scripture, so it's not a perfect analogy. And as we go through this, also just remember that scripture is what's inerrant. Theology is what's built out of scripture. That's why sermons go verse by verse, and then we build a theology out of it. This work has already been done. So I'm going to try to support these points of scripture as much as I can. But know that this is a case of showing you pre existing work. First of all, we just said we're under the arch, we're finite creatures. What standing do we have to even be talking about God's attributes? If He's so far transcendent and above, what business do we have even having this conversation? He to reveal Himself to us. So, the He has revealed Himself, to. Yeah, exactly. I, the, so, there's, He's revealed, He has chosen, as you said, to reveal Himself to us. And we 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 often say that he's revealed himself to us in two different ways. Do you, do you guys know what those two ways are? Okay. General Yeah, yeah. So what's the? So I'm going to repeat what you say just for the microphone. But you just said general general revelation and special revelation. And here's Romans one nineteen that says for what God. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. So God is a God who reveals himself to his creation in a general way. What kinds of things do we learn from general revelation? Yep, yep. So we see, well, again, I'll just repeat. We learn things that we see in nature. Um, do you have any specific examples of what, what does it mean? Re- good, good. Um, Stuart, last week when you were talking about John 1, you talked about in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and we talked about Word being that Greek word logos. And Stuart made the, the comment that I really liked that the Jewish audience heard one thing and the Greek audience heard another thing. In the Greek world at the time, the Greek speaking world, there was a titanic struggle between those who thought that chaos was fundamental and, the, and those that thought order was fundamental. And and just to sidetrack a little bit, it was the Homer and Hesiod were the two founders of the worldview, that's the Greek gods and all that, that asserted that fundamental was chaos, and all these gods were just sort of derivative of that chaos. But the philosophers, Plato and the rest of them, argued that order was fundamental. Now, they didn't understand the triune God like we do, But along comes John, and he says, in the beginning was the Word, in the beginning was order. He was basically agreeing with the philosophers. And you even mentioned Heraclitus, who had a very similar statement. But in John's case, he was revealing to us Jesus. So I completely agree that probably the most important thing that general revelation gives us is an assurance that order is fundamental. And order requires a mind. Order requires a creator. Um, what? What's the other form of revelation? Okay. And special revelation is when God speaks to us directly. Either today we'd say that's that's the word of God, the Bible. Matthew eleven twenty seven says, "All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father." And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So what is that saying? That's saying God chooses to reveal himself to people in a very direct and personal way. So special special and uh, general revelation are the two primary ways that we know that we even have standing to talk about the attributes of God. So with that kind of posturing and uh, those assertions, Let's go ahead and turn our attention to the first of these. Any questions so far? So let's start with the knowability of God. Well, well, I'm sorry, this is a sort of continuation of this. Can we know God fully? No, because he's transcendent and we're not. We know that he's revealed himself in part to us. Psalm 145.3 says, Great is the Lord and greatly do you be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. Psalm 147 says, His understanding is beyond measure. Psalm 139, I think we're all familiar with. His knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. And Romans 11.33 says, the, riches of, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments, how inscrutable His ways. So, we cannot know him fully. We can understand some of his attributes, and there's certainly scripture that talks about increasing in the knowledge of God. But the fun part about this is that neither in this life nor in the heaven, new heavens, and new earth will we ever run out of things to learn about God because we will never understand him fully. We'll never run out of things to learn about him, and yet. We can know Him truly. We don't just just stop at facts about God. We can know Him truly. Jeremiah says, "'Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight.'" And John also says that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So this is knowing God personally, not just academic facts about God. Because a lot of what we're going to talk about today is going to sound kind of academic. And to me, that's a reason to rejoice. We have, we have a personal God who reveals himself to us, and we can know him. So... When we talk about the attributes of God, traditionally most systematic theologies will break them down into two types. The first type we call the incommunicable attributes of God. And the second type we'll talk about later. We're not going to get anywhere near the communicable stuff today. Communicable attributes. Has anyone ever heard these terms before? Can you go ahead and describe them? Right? So the incommunicable ones are ones that are not shared with us. And frankly, a lot of them are, are tied into his transcendence. Because we're created beings, we have, no, we have no, there's no possibility that we could share in these attributes like eternality with him. The communicable attributes are those attributes that we are connected to in some way, more or less. We have a sense of morality, for instance, or we have mental capacity. So today we're going to start with the incommunicable attributes, and I don't think we'll get through them all today. The first one I want to visit is this idea of unity. And that is that God is not composed of parts. Yes, we believe in a triune God. God is one God in three persons, but we are a monotheistic faith. And it's important that we not try to turn God into a collection of things. Um, I'll show you a diagram here in a second, but <clears throat> there's a right way to think about God, in the Trinity even, where God is all of his attributes all the time. He's not a composition of other things. Because if he was, those other things, the best way I understand it, is that those other things would have to be created as well. And that's a, this is a, we're talking above the arch, uncreated transcendence. So therefore, the only thing that exists is a simple God. What is the technical term for that? I forget. Simplicity. What's? Is there a? Okay. So when we talk about his different attributes, like God is wrath or God is love, neither one of those can be separated from the other. They're not localized. This, this part of God is not wrath. This part of God is not love, and neither one is more important. When we go through his attributes, they're all important. And we see different ones at different times, in different, in different scenarios. But, um, but fundamentally, because of his unity, uh, his attributes are permeate all of him together. He's not a collection of his attributes, and his attributes are not attached to his being. So, what does that mean? So, this was taken from Wayne Gruden's systematic theology. This is a wrong way to look at uh, the unity of God where he contains knowledge, where he contains goodness, justice, power, etc. Because then you have to ask well, what would happen if you could take one of those out? Would God be deficient in some way? And that's just an impossibility. So God is as perfect as he ever has been and as perfect as he could ever be and that's one of the ways we say he's unchanging. So it's it's wrong to think of knowledge as an independent thing that he has. He is knowledge. He is justice. Another wrong way to think about it is that these attributes are somehow just attached to his essence; that they exist independently and they're attached to him. If he's truly, if he's truly one, actually, let's let me come back to that one. Um, If he's truly one, then each one of his attributes permeates. He is all of these all at the same time. And I say this is right-ish because it's kind of a hard diagram to follow, but the point is that, that he's all justice all the time, and he's all love all the time, and he's all grace all the time. Even in his trinity, he is not a combination of the persons of the trinity, in the sense that only when all three persons of the Trinity are together is he truly God. Each person of the Trinity is all that God is, since God is one. Each member of the Trinity is fully God. I've skipped the lessons. Does that make sense? In his unity, he's all of his attributes, not a collection of them, he is all of them. So here's a question, how much God was in Jesus when the incarnation happened? How much, because God is transcendent and Jesus is the God-man, eminent, how much of God made it into Jesus? All? I think you're right. Colossians 2.9. <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't mean to. For in him the whole fullness of de- deity dwells bodily. And that's one of the mysteries. I mean, when we talk about transcendence and eminence, when the incarnation happens and Jesus is fully man and fully God, which is itself a hard thing to grasp. He's not half and half. You? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. That's one of the things we're going to cover this. He's unbound from space in his transcendence. That's why this arch is so helpful to me. If you guys find it useful, that's great. Otherwise, it helps me talk about it. In his transcendence, God permeates every square point in space in in, in our cosmos and outside our cosmos. But Jesus, in his humanity, did not. He was here, he was here, he traveled to Jerusalem, he was crucified on a cross, uh, he ascended into heaven, he's sitting at the right hand of God in his human body today, eminent under the arch, while simultaneously still being a member, a full... I shouldn't say member, see, you got to be careful. Still being a fully a part of the Trinity, a part. See, talking of transcendence language gets very tough. But being a full person of the Trinity above the arch, at the same time having an imminent presence in time and space under the arch. But the, the, the thing that's really hard to grasp is in that miracle, C.S. Lewis said that the greatest miracle of God was the incarnation because somehow you bridge transcendence in the full, whole fullness of deity in the eminent Christ. I think, it, it, yeah, certainly in, on earth, in fully God, fully man, in his eminence, he can be localized. In fact, we know that even God the Father, or God, in the Old Testament was eminent in the temple. He was eminent in the tabernacle, or when he passed by Moses. So under the arch, he has an eminence that can be one place at one time, but yet, and, and maybe this is a good point to bring out, In his transcendence, he's also both and everywhere all the time. And that transcendence includes creation. Transcendence doesn't stop at the arch. That's why the I am is kind of over the top of the arch, because I want to portray this idea that his his transcendence doesn't stop uh, under the arch where we are. He's both transcendent and eminent, and in his eminence, he's localized. Make sense? Okay, let's move on to independence. I'm sorry, I've got these handouts here, but I'm kind of... Okay, so there's a fancy word for this. Aseity. aseity. What does aseity mean? Self existence. Yeah. From himself. Yeah, it's a fancy Latin word. It gets used in all the fancy uh, textbooks, but fundamentally it means that God does not need any of us or creation. He is fully complete in himself. Hopefully that's not a surprise to anybody. He didn't create us because he was lacking something, because he was lonely. He created us for a purpose, for sure, but it wasn't because he was really missing us. He is totally self-sufficient in the relationship of the Trinity, and we'll see that from Scripture here in a second and even God's name declares his independence from creation. Yahweh I am is is transcendence language. Prior to creation, he's he is from eternity past, I am. I will be, I am, I was, he just is. And that's 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 above the arch thinking right there. Acts 17:24 says The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So there's a clear statement that God in his transcendence is not bound by our temples, our structures, our ideas of him even. He's completely independent. Now, under the arch, we happen to know that he lived in the temple in Jerusalem, until he vacated it. John 17 and now father glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. There's a clear statement that Jesus was with the father independent of creation before the world was even before the world was even created. In John 17, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So the Trinity was not missing us. They had perfect fellowship amongst the three members of the Trinity, the three persons of the Trinity prior to creation. And yet, in all of these all of these attributes have a statement and a yet to them. And the yet is, while all that's true and he doesn't need us, we can glorify him and we bring him joy. The fact that he created us, he created, He did create us for a purpose. One of those purposes is to glorify himself, but he does love us. He doesn't need us, but he loves us. And we know that because he sent his son to... Actually, the thing that blows my mind... Yes, saving us from sin, dying on a cross and resurrecting, but taking on humanity to start with, that's a pretty deep commitment to, to us. Ephesians 1, 11 says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. There's God in his sovereignty right there, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. We exist to glorify him, but it wasn't like he was sitting around one day saying, I really need to be glorified, how can I do this? It it satisfied him to do this, but it was not necessary. Okay, this is one that can get a little bit controversial we're going to talk about is unchangingness. And this this is, uh, the fancy word is immutability, which means, does God change? Now, we are all in the Reformed, most of us are in the Reformed tradition. Our knee-jerk reaction is Sunday school is to say, no, God does not change. God is unchanging. That's a, that's a correct answer. But this is where we need to talk about eminence versus transcendence. Historically, um, systematic theologies have have said that God is immutable in three different ways. He's unchangeable in his character, who he is. He does not become more God or less God with time. He says God does not change his promises. So when he makes a covenant with his people, those covenants are those covenants are, are not something he will ever violate. He is faithful to his covenants. And God does not change His purposes. Now, how many of you heard the term eternal decree? Okay, so so go ahead and tell me what tell the class what eternal decrees are. yeah yeah, so for the sake of the mic, um, his eternal decree is his will established before the foundation of the earth of everything that's going to happen. Now, if you're in the reformed tradition, that's a pretty strong doctrine right there. That's everything that's going to happen. And when we talk about knowing God's will, we need to be careful about what we're talking about, because God has revealed His will to us in the in the word. That will is to follow Jesus. That's a moral will. This is his eternal secret counsel. We don't get to know this. This is something that we get to... How do you know what God's decree is for what happens this afternoon? By waiting until this afternoon. afternoon. Yeah, exactly. want to know what God's will is, his eternal decree, wait to see what happens. But that doesn't change. And I think the the main value of of a strong theology of the eternal decrees for us is confidence. We can have confidence that God is not out of control, that he's not sitting up there with a wish list just hoping it would work out. He's strongly sovereign and has has decreed every single thing that comes to pass. That can present problems. And it presented, you know, confession time, it presented a problem for me for a while when I was first confronted with uh, these doctrines. But I'll get into that in a minute. Psalm 1 or 2 says, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. God does not change. Psalm 33 says, The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The counsel, you can use the word counsel or decree of the same thing. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of His heart to all generations. And James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. It's a pretty strong statement that God does not change in His transcendence. Isaiah, I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. That's the eternal decrees right there. He's declaring everything from the end to the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done. He's got the future in his hand, saying, My counsel, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish my purpose. So God has an eternal decree that he doesn't give us heads-up, advance preview of. And we can talk about prophets separately because the prophets in the Old Testament were not announcing God's eternal decree. Um, They were announcing, they they were doing something different. But God's eternal purposes will be accomplished without fail. And here's where it gets complicated, because if you read the Old Testament, God is frequently saying, I'm going to do this, something happens, and God doesn't do it. He relents. The Hebrew word is, you know, naham. It's to relent. It's also the same word used for repent. But because we don't like to say God repents, we'll say God relents. And he interacts personally with his creation and relationally with his creation. So these are all, we won't go through all of these, but if you doubt that, look up all these passages. God likes to relent from judgment. The first one was when, after the golden calf incident, Moses prayed this prayer. God says, I'm going to destroy these people. Moses prayed this prayer and said, please don't. And God said, okay, I won't. Jonah, God's prophecy against Jonah, or Jonah's prophecy against Nineveh was 40 days hence, no conditions, you're toast. Yet, when they repented, Jonah actually gets mad because he knew, I knew you were God, who wouldn't do it if they repented. And there's a reason I'm going into this, because it has to do with our prayer life. So some of these other prophets, I would, uh, on your own, you're free to look these up, but time after time after time, people repent, and God doesn't do what he said he was going to do. Does that sound like God changing? And this is back to, in his transcendence, no, he doesn't change. His eternal decree has not been revealed to us yet. But under the arch, in time and space, the way he works out his decree is by saying, I'm going to do this, we respond in some way. He responds to us, cause and effect, and we become the means by which his eternal decrees are carried out. Another example would be salvation. We believe that God elects people, but that's not an excuse not to share the gospel because the gospel is the means by which God has predetermined that a person has, is going to be saved. And at the bottom, I point out a couple of other things. Biblical uh, characters in the Old Testament had, had this view of God's relenting in mind all the time, it's like an undercurrent. In Joel, um, I think that so when, when God's preparing judgment on Israel, Joel says, coaches everyone to repent, and he, his comment is, who knows, maybe it won't happen. So even though God said he was going to destroy them, the idea from both Joel and David and Samuel is that if you repent and you pray, who knows? The the case in Samuel is when um, God had declared that David's child was going to die. And what he did, usually you wait until you know, if someone dies, then you mourn them. But he put on the mourning clothes and started mourning right away. And when the child did die, he got up and went and worshipped the Lord. Now, why? And he was actually asked, why did you do that in reverse? Why did, you, why did you mourn and go into mourning before the child died? And David's answer was, because who knows? Through my repentance, my mourning, and my repentance for my sin... God may not have the child die after all. Does that make sense? Okay, so so this is me just sort of thinking through how this affects us a little bit. Um, We are congregationally reformed congregation. That means we believe God has eternal decrees. There is a large swath of evangelical Christianity out there that is not reformed. And they really don't have a very strong doctrine of predestination or eternal decrees or election. And what that what that turns into is God has a wish list. He has a, a set of things he wants to happen, but he's not sovereignly foreordained everything that will happen. And then in his eminence, they usually have a pretty strong theology of eminence, answering prayer, you pray. You expect God to change things when you pray. That's a very biblical view of prayer that they have. They also have a very high view of human responsibility. But ultimately, that lack of a doctrine of God's immutable decree means that they can't have confidence in what God is doing. There's no robust view of God's sovereignty. Um, on the other end of that scale, there is what we call like the hyper-Calvinist or the hyper-Reformed view that falls into another trap, which is they love sovereignty, we all do, but they don't also have a robust view of God's eminence. And so that can result in sort of a flat fatalism where because he's got everything foreordained, we're all just kind of play acting. The relationship we have with with him is not dynamic and real, it's just kind of going through the motions And so when we pray, it's just a a charade we're doing because, I mean, he actually, a hyper-Calvinist or hyper-Reformed person will often answer the question, why do you pray with this one answer? Because God commanded you to. Yes, he does. That's one reason you pray. But that's not the only reason you pray. You pray in repentance in hopes that God will change things. So the theological problem there is a fatalism, passivity, and this idea that whatever will be, will be. And I actually, I went through that myself when I was first becoming familiar with, uh, with Reformed theology. I went through a phase where I found that, that my prayer life was just shriveling. My prayers were turning into, Lord, just have your will be done. I'm, I know you're good. I know you're sovereign. Just let your will be done. But that doesn't work when it's your kid that's sick. when when someone you care about is in trouble or you're dealing with disaster, you need to know that God is reacting to your prayers. And that theology of eminence, where God is using your prayer in his greater purpose to change things and really believing in the power of prayer is what classical reform theology is all about. We acknowledge that he's got a decree. He's going to do what he's going to do. But he may be using your prayer, your actions to change things. Questions, thoughts, objections? Yes? Yeah. Yeah. So that's why the arch to me is helpful because it depends on where you look at it from. If you're looking at him and his sovereignty and his transcendence, yes, he's planned that prayer. He's planned the prayers you're going to pray. It's still the means by which, you're gonna, which he's going to accomplish his purpose. But we don't live in transcendence. Day to day, we have to get up and live in eminence under the arch. And since we don't know what his eternal decree is, we need, in fact, I'm going to show you a quote that I, thought, I think will surprise you in a second. But even Calvin, I'll show you the quote here in a second. But we need to live as if we don't know his decree, who knows, and pray and Yeah. So the way the way I look at it, that's helpful to me is to not worry about God's decrees looking forward in time, but to act as if I have some role to play in it. And then when it turns out, like in the case of David in that scripture, when God does what God's going to do, then at least you can rest in the fact that God was in control of the situation. Does that help at all? Mm-hmm. But, but if the kid is sick, the kid's still sick. I guess my connection between what the Old Testament, my, my purpose in showing the Old Testament stuff is that under the arch, God reacts to repentance and to prayer. And so it's an antidote to the hyper-reformed view that it doesn't matter what I pray or if I pray because God's going to do whatever will be, will be. That passivity that can creep in. If your view of sovereignty is not also not taken down, we're not saying take down your sovereign view and replace it with anything. We're saying believe in sovereignty and also believe in God's eminence. And under the where we all live under the arch, um, live as if your prayer matters. Does that makes sense. It's, and by the way. Because your prayer matters. Yes, better said. Your prayer does matter. And I'll I'll, I'll get you. The one thing that... um, Actually, I'm going to go. What what do you got? Well,
1: the one point I want to make is, I think one of the biggest things about prayer is that it changes us more than it changes God. And as we pray, it You know, in your example with David... His prayer was for him, for him to repent, for mm-hmm. him to change. And so it's, it's more about us changing than it is God.
0: Well, we change. God doesn't change. But yes. under the arch, God answers prayers, and God can That's change right. things. Because he's merciful. Yes. He loves to he's relent from gracious. things.
1: Those attributes have to be balanced with his immutability.
0: Yeah. And, and, and I'll even fine-tune that. I'd say... Balance is, I don't like the word balance because it implies you're taking away from something, yeah, so. but it, you're augmenting yeah. your view of sovereignty with your view of God's dynamic presence. I mean, historically, God is seen as pure action, pure vitality in history. He's always up to something. He's not a static God. Any other comments? So... um At the bottom, I I put this uh, little reference here. This is where I got some of this thinking from. This guy is a a professor. He was at Reformed Theological Seminary. But he did this series on lectures on prophecy, and it was transformative to me to understand, as I'm grappling with God's sovereignty, what role does God's response to humans play in all that, because it is there, and you can't ignore it, because you can't make sense of the Old Testament without it. Yes? Yes? Yeah. Yes. You have somebody, right? Right. You have, that, you have to go through
1: like, right. you go to that, that has power and control over that? We have that
0: does have power and over that. can That's right. Because who knows? Yeah. Yeah. But it, I think the point of prayer is that we have somebody to go to. We have somebody
1: like I have my wife I can go to for a conversation to lean on to, to have that you know, that
0: conversation with the word blessing we have as as Christians, we have that God that goes on. And and I would uh add one more thing. Um i don't interpret that as, I have to pray a perfect prayer. I have to be, you know, do all the right things in prayer. Our prayers are always imperfect because we're imperfect. But we are also indwelt with the Holy Spirit who prays on our behalf. So it's who your faith is in. As D.A. Carson once said, it's not the fervency or the, the correctness of how you pray. It's who you're praying to and, your, and who your faith is in. Yes? Depends on what you're praying for. What things? So, Stuart's right. It changes you, but it also... But you would say it does not change his... It doesn't change the future in the sense of God's immutable decree No, okay. So, to me... So, I'm sorry to interrupt. Um, His decree is really not... I can't characterize it as the future. It's everything. His decree is everything that's going to happen. No, his eternal decree is immutable. It's not going to change but under the arch i'd say if you pray something and it happens theologically speaking your prayer was part of it Does that makes this you, you agree with that? More yes. So you're not saying that god changes his mind because of our prayer or you Good great question. Okay. okay. Yeah, and I think that's a temptation. So I don't like to say God changes his mind because that is very easily confused. His, I will say this, his eternal degree, decree does not change. That's part of his immutability. But just go read the Old Testament. I'm going to do this. Actually, could you look up Jeremiah 18? See how quick I can get there. Okay, this is the episode. Let me find the right verses here. The potter and the clay. Let me find the right verses. Okay, starting in verse, well, I'll start in verse five and I'll just read it. And deal with this. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done? declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so you are in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom, that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. So, can we all at least get on board with the idea that repenting has to do with prayer? I will relent from the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build it and plant it, and if it does not, if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good I will relent of the good that I had intended to do it. Therefore, however. Now, therefore, say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. So how do you react to that? Return everyone from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. The prophecy is judgment. How do you react to that? You sit back and say, Oh, it's his eternal degree, judgment. I guess I'll just try to ride this out best I can. No, God's call is repent. Who knows? It's a a difficult concept. But we have to have a solid view of his eternal decrees, his immutability, and the fact that prayer is effective. Read this quote from uh, John Calvin, of all people. Wherefore, with reference to the time future, so this is not Holy Scripture, he could be wrong but I thought it was interesting anyway. With reference to the time future, since the events of things are as yet hidden and unknown, that's decrees, we don't get to know them, everyone ought to be as intent upon the performance of his duty as if nothing whatever had been decreed. Decrees have their place in our theology, and that's our confidence in God. But don't let decrees make you passive. Do you have your room in your theology for James 4.8? Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. That's a conditional statement. Or, and I don't remember the verse address, also from James, the prayers of a righteous man avail much. There's assertions that this stuff matters. Under the arch, what we do matters. So if you are flirting with that hyper-reformed view, pay attention to that. but don't give up on God's sovereignty either okay we are out of time so next week we'll pick up on eternity his uh, transcendence over time so any last thoughts or questions suggestions Stuart would you pray for us
1: oh father uh, we uh, we praise you because you are transcendent father you are you are above all things. Father, we we can't fully comprehend your character. We are thankful that you have revealed yourself to us through your word and through creation. I pray that you would help us to, to be different, to be transformed by what we know about you, to live differently, to rely upon you, and to glorify you with our service. Please continue to use our worship this morning for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray.
0: Amen. Thank you all.